Hello and welcome to the Scottish Football Show. The first silverware of the season is up for grabs. We try and figure out who's going to grab it. Safe standing at football grounds. Can you stand it? And a cock up with Cochrane. A warm welcome to episode 30 of the Scottish Football Show. With just over three months of the season to go, absolutely mental how time is flying. I'm Andrew Slavin, your host who talks annoyingly the most. And joining me, she works for West Ham as a senior producer. She's a hearts hater and a devotee <laughs> of Lyndon Dykes. It's Laura Brannan. Hi, Laura. That's a new one, isn't it? <laughs> I like hearts, actually, but... Not what not what somebody said on Twitter this week. Somebody's um, got a little bit of a tinfoil hat on and thinks that I'm not a fan. <laughs> also joining us, smashing buttons like there's no tomorrow, it's football filmmaker Finn Marks. I did mean um, editing buttons, Finn, not chocolate buttons. <laughs> uh, I'm more likely to be smashing the chocolate buttons, in fairness. There's, there's not much button smashing, sadly, in editing. It's, <laughs> it's more just a series of millions of millions of clicks with your mouse. So, yeah. <laughs> How are we guys? We alright? I f- <laughs> thanks, mate. Is that you smashing buttons now? Smashing the buttons. Um yeah, that's the, that's the very tired voice of a father of two who basically hasn't slept in a month, so Yeah, doing good. The the upshot doing of it good? all is I'm up doing good. I'm up I'm up most mornings early now, which means if there's football on, I'll be watching it because um, my oldest Cameron, who's about eighteen months old, his new favourite word on the entire planet is Football. Football. And he wants me to put football on, no matter what it is. He's indiscriminatory to who I put on. So uh, I think last week we watched uh, Hearts versus Hamilton in the Cup. And on what well, would have been our Saturday morning, it was Dundee Morton on BBC Scotland. So I like yeah. the idea that like kids TV in the morning for your wee boy is, is football. That's quite strange, isn't it? Are you enjoying the football in the morning? Yeah, I'm more than happy with it. It's great. I, I, I did start off by putting on Bluey. I think I've mentioned Bluey several times on the podcast before. Legendary. He kind of loses interest in that fairly quickly. I think he might be a bit young, but... Is that hard to take as a Rangers fan? <laughs> <laughs> I think the Australian voices probably remind me more of Big Ange. I think that's what uh, Bluey's dad's uh, probably more yeah. like. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, when I go down in the morning into the kitchen now, the first thing he asks for, he points to the TV and goes purple so that's i'm just putting on what the audience wants and uh, I'm, I'm i'm happy with that laura you're all right aren't you i'm all good i'm, I'm getting my sleep i'm, I'm watching <laughs> football at normal hours there's nothing really to complain about normal hours normal hours what are they i don't know what it is we're recording this it's currently 10 to 11 at night on a monday <laughs> my goodness well let's get stuck into it there's some there's always plenty of things going on at the weekend in Scottish football. Well, not even so much in Scottish football. Down in the, the Premier League, Sidney Woody, guys. <laughs> Absolutely love this. That's amazing. Love this. John McGinn uh, and Tom Hanks getting a wee, a wee photograph together. How nice was that? Absolutely love it. I've never thought of John McGinn looking like Sid before. Oh, well, I forgot Tom Hanks was an Aston Villa fan. <laughs> so there you go. I didn't even know he was, but I, I just like when these things come together like that. And... um. I like seeing when um, players are meeting their idols and see their, their sort of little childlike joy on their face because normally it's the other way around. So it was kind of cute. Very cute. I'm just really looking forward to a fan somewhere on YouTube cutting all of John McGinn's best bits together, hopefully for Scotland, but pro- 
all including Aston Villa as well with the do 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 I think that would just be the perfect background music for John McGinn slamming into tackles throwing his arse around and scoring worldies amazing you've got a friend indeed John McGinn one thing that caught my eye which I thought was hilarious or just bemusing really more than anything else pretty big win for Motherwell on Sunday against Hearts 2-0 but the weirdest moment was when uh, Alex Cochran walked off the pitch. I think it was the, the fourth official put up his number. But Robbie Nielsen was making a triple sub because they were that gash. <laughs> inject some energy. And Alex Cochran just got confused. He saw the saw his, his number go up and he went, He was at the far side of the pitch and walked off. Clapping the fans. Clapping the fans, yeah. Did you see it? It was hilarious. And then suddenly realised there's only 10 men on the pitch. Oh, he just walks back on again. He doesn't even wait for the ref, does he? It was just bemusing. We went back on. No, strange, strange moment. The goal at Dundee United can see at the weekend as well. Oh, my God. What a hell of that was. Ferragetti. Jeez, oh, man. I mean, I feel like... I know he got stretched off afterwards, and I don't know the details, so it would be harsh of me to think it was a sympathy stretcher. But um, he absolutely sold the dummy big time. How soon after was it? It was immediately, well, it was the tackle immediately from Stevie May. He stayed down. So he was stretched off after that. With a chronic red face. Yeah, I think it was more his pride that was uh, annihilated than any body part, I think. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, suggest he's not, he's faking it, right? But I mean, after that, yeah, you'd be pretty red faced. I don't know what he's playing at. He's passed it out to, um, it's a Charlie McGrew yeah. who passes it back to him basically what you do it and then he dilly dallies and uh, I like Andy Barsh or some comms for sports scene actually <laughs> and he did quite well Very Gitty being obviously Australian is he Ben? He is indeed yeah Andy basically suggested that he was, was in a different time zone <laughs> I quite enjoyed that I'm just going to say Dunfermline fans, Dunfermline, well done tonight. You pumped this, Nathwoods. Right, guys, we're moving on to some news. I, I did bring up earlier uh, that Motherwell had a massive win against Hearts, two 0 on Sunday. Desperately needing those three points, but they desperately need a manager, a new one in the dugout. And we think that there's going to be someone probably by the time this podcast goes out. Laura, have you got any details? No inside info. Um, if you're coming to me for that, absolutely not. Um, taking this purely from what's in the news, that uh, Grant McCann, Ian Lolly, and Stuart Kettlewell were down to the final three getting interviewed for the role. But it looks like all stories are pointing towards Stuart Kettlewell getting the job. No idea in terms of how long it's going to be for, if it's going to be the end of the season or a longer term deal. But if it is him, absolutely fair play. I think it's a good appointment for Motherwell. He's obviously been involved. For quite a while this season, he knows exactly how the club is run. So even if we're talking short-term deal here, he knows the club inside out at this point. He knows players. He helped sign the players as well. He was involved in the, the transfer window in January when obviously so many new boys came in. He's obviously hit the ground running as interim manager, two wins out of two. Why disrupt that? It's, it's going well so far. It, it may just be that kind of new manager bounce you get after somebody leaves the job. But I think he is has got what the club needs to at least save them this season from relegation and what happens after happens. It seems kind of like a bit odd. That, not odd, but Ian Holloway and, and Grant McCann have reasonable pedigrees as managers and to interview them, I, I can only imagine that this all really comes down to money, Finn. I, I think so. I, th- I also think the, there's a lot of validity in the point that Laura makes about um, mi- kind of minimal disruption to to the running of things. I think... 
the fact that um, Kettlewell's had two matches in charge on an interim basis and has two victories. Well, that's, that's more than Motherwell have been able to string together in how many months. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if, if that's kind of working and there's not going to be any disruption, there's probably not going to be a huge amount of disruption in terms of a coaching staff coming in or other people, you know, you nutritionalist or whatever it is that a new manager who's coming from outside might bring in with them mm-hmm. at this stage of the season where like you're saying at the top of the show there's only three months left you know there's only about a third of the season left to go I, I think the minimal disruption thing goes in and also you know you look back to the job that Kettlewell was doing at Ross County I, I always felt that he tried to play good football he tried to bring in youngsters when he could and mm-hmm. he, was, he seemed quite a progressive manager just in the way that he talked and you see that when he does punditry as well so I think it's a good appointment my only hesitation and drawback is just I've been champing at the bit for Ian Holloway to get a gig in Scottish football for <laughs> years and we, I feel like we've got so close and yet it's another rejection so that's my plea to the next club that sacks their manager can we please get Ian Holloway into Scottish football as quick as possible because he is the exact type of character we want in the game well Aberdeen are looking for a manager so well yeah you won't go to Aberdeen <laughs> <laughs> Elsewhere, uh, Linda Dykes has returned to training with Queen's Park Rangers. He was hospitalised with pneumonia last month, so good to see that he's doing much better. It was his now sack manager, Neil Critchley, that's saying he was doing low-level physical stuff. The begs the question, really, is that if, if the March doubleheader, will he be back in time for that? Probably unlikely, Laura. Well, yeah, it's, it's so hard to tell. It's, it's impressive that he's back in training at this stage. It's obviously such a serious thing to happen to him. I don't really know how long he was in hospital for. Um, there was very little kind of information put out at the time. I think it was his wife's Instagram that was kind of providing the news updates there. But um, like, it's it's hard to tell in terms of fitness. But every player's different. Everyone's personal health is different. It's just how he responds. Really, some absolutely back out of the park and and amaze everyone. He's, I mean, there's no question of his commitment. He's been one of the boys the past that's been. I think he was suspended for a game, and I think it was the Moldova away game. And he still has to travel and still be part of the squad because it was a game that we could clinch the playoff place for and he wanted to be part of it and, and kind of help psych the boys up for it, even though he couldn't play himself. So, I mean, he's, his commitment's definitely there. I think, obviously, he'll be doing all he can to, to push on and get back. And I imagine, like any player that's out with an injury, it drives him up the wall because they uh-huh. can't do anything. Um, so, I mean, he's the first, he'll be the first person to admit he's doing everything he can to come back as soon as possible. But it's just... I mean, I'm no medical person, but I can't imagine it's a sort of condition you want to push back too soon as well, considering you don't want your lungs to be put under that sort of pressure. No, of course not. Like Scotland against Cyprus on the 25th of March in Spain. I mean, that's one he would really want to be involved in if he could. Uh, that would be an absolutely brilliant game. Obviously, he's an elite level athlete, so you, you might think that he would be able to recover more quickly than just Joe Public. But like Laura's saying, it, it, it's absolutely determined by the person's own biology basically and pneumonia is one of those things that some people can start to recover from it within a a couple of weeks some people it can take up to six months I think because it's a viral thing it can take you know however long to get over it the thing that we absolutely don't want to see happen is he pushes himself too hard too fast so that he comes back before his body's ready to and I just think that would be the worst thing Uh. The good thing is that I don't think we're short of options. Obviously, we want as many of our best players at the national level available to us all the time. But injuries are just part and parcel of that when you're only playing a handful of games over the course of a year. 
I don't think we're as destitute in the striking department as we were, say, maybe 18 months ago or two years ago when Dykes was just starting to come in. I think the fact that Shea Adams has had a pretty good season for Southampton, who haven't been really firing all cylinders at all. And obviously, we've how many times have we mentioned that Lauren Shankland has had a terrific season for Hart? So we do have backup options. And I just, I don't want to see him forced back too soon. I, I know... That story is brilliant of him still wanting to travel with the squad to the Moldova game. But yeah, you just hope that he does a sensible thing and looks after himself properly because it's not insignificant. (laughs) Like pneumonia is a really serious disease. So yeah, we just wish him all the best and hopefully he'll be he'll be back sooner rather than later. Yeah, hopefully a few other players to mention that might be back in time. Fingers crossed, Nathan Patterson. Uh, Looks like his rehabilitation at Everton is going quite well too. That would be nice to see him back in contention and fighting for a place because it just breeds that competition thing like you were mentioning we're going to move on now because later on we'll be speaking about the League Cup final between Celtic and Rangers but up next do you like to stand? And Stevie May! Bedlam! Chaos! Euphoria in the away stand! Blue limbs everywhere! The Green Brigade have launched a campaign to grow Celtic's standing section on a scale that could even rival Borussia Dortmund's yellow wall. The fan group currently have a standing area of 2,700, but they want the entire Jockstein stand opposite side from them to be transformed into the Celtic end. Safe standing is still relatively new in this country, in the whole of Britain actually. After the Hillsborough disaster, all-seater stadiums were brought in as a regulation. But almost three decades on, designs and technology have evolved, guys. So the question is, is it a direction of travel we are not quite ready for? Or do you think these sort of discussions, at least discussions, we are ready for, Laura? Yeah, obviously this has been going on for a long, long time. Uh, I think it was 2011 when Celtic first had the conversations with the the SPFL and the the government um, allowed and everything. Uh, Obviously brought in in 2016. They were the pioneers really across the whole of the UK. We've since seen a number of clubs trialling it in England. I think there's eight this season that are trialling it. A few did it, I think it was maybe five towards the end of last season, more came on board this season. But in Scotland, there's not really been anyone following suit. So we've we've had Kilmarnock, are really the only ones that have done it ever since. They have two different standing sections. They, they brought it in December 2019 and they've got the, the small stand in the east and the small section in the family stand together. They actually only hold 324 fans. It's a very small number, not quite on the same level as Celtics and again, not quite the same level you'll see across Europe. So as much as Celtic really have kind of opened the door here to like kind of get the ball rolling on this, We've not really seen clubs kind of jump on board with it. I mean, we can go into the kind of reasons why that is. A lot of that could be down to cost. A lot of it could also be down to the league not really pushing it in terms of changing this culture of how we actually attend football matches. And if you've not got a central unit pushing this and you've got clubs struggling financially, do they really listen to the appetite of the supporters? Is that is that the driving force then? It has to be... It has to come from the fan groups and do you think it should become more of a, a collective and a bit of a you know solidarity among fan groups to try and get this agenda across so that more clubs and stadia can you know, maximise this as an opportunity, albeit maximise it safely? Yeah, I, I think it's very much like 
there's there's clubs that have shown interest. Um, we we've had the likes of um, Hibs have voiced interest, and for definite, I think the Union Bears are in talks as well for and at Ibrox. There is murmurs and there's this conversations being had, but it's really just how you push it further. And I, I know that like the the Motherwell section talked about it as well at Fir Park. The issue with that one was the the section that the boys stand in is actually it's not safe to build safe standing where they are uh-huh. because of the gradient of the the, the, the dimensions of where the, the stand is and the, the steps there. They could do it in another stand, but it's whether there's appetite for that in a different stand compared to where they want it to be. So there's this there's problems like that. You look at clubs though like um Aberdeen, if they are ever going to move into their new stadium, it could be something that's actually planned in advance. Of actually building a place rather than having to change logistics around, but yeah, I think it, without the SPFL really driving this from within and looking to how clubs across Europe do it and and America do it and saying right, how has it changed them? How is it safe? How has it changed the atmosphere positively? Do we want this in Scottish football? It's just sort of left up to the, the clubs and the fans to communicate with each, between each other. And let's be honest, we all know that the clubs. And the fans are not great at communicating um, sometimes. So where are we really going to get to with this? Just to come back on you on, on that specific point, Laura, I mean, I am absolutely the first person to usually have a go at the SPFL for not having a coordinated front on pretty much anything, like especially marketing <laughs> in the way that we put ourselves out to, to the wider world. I, I do think in, in the context of safe standing, it is something almost on a club-by-club basis for the reasons that you were kind of outlining there, almost every single stadium in Scotland and every single supporter base is slightly different. And actually, I think coming at it with a one-size-fits-all thing might not be the best thing because even if you look at certain clubs, there might not be an appetite at all within their supporters really to have uh, a safe-standing element. I don't know if with Rangers, they may be slightly more reticent to the idea of it because of the history of the stadium disasters at Ibrox. So you need to kind of like work with all those things. And and like you're saying, there are actual logistics sometimes like it might cost too much or the gradient of the stand is not right or it, it just might not work so I, I actually think with this you do need to almost take it on a case-by-case basis and I think where we've seen the flip side of having a, almost like a needless one-size-fits-all approach to stadia in the past that's really harmed the Scottish game was the SPL's mandate that every club in the top flight had to have a 10,000 all-seater stadium which yes. wasn't fit for purpose for most of the clubs that are in 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 our top flight. Um, and that was merely just trying to copy what was going on in England. A point on that, just to touch on very quickly, is historically, a lot of this discussion goes back to the Hillsborough disaster. Um, not, I mean, there have been many stadium disasters, including a very tragic one in, in our own country, Ibrox, in the 1970s. But the Hillsborough disaster brought out actual legal uh-huh. changes there was there was legislation that was brought about as a result of the Taylor report which mandated that um, certain things should be done and the FA picked up on those which is where the whole all-seater stadium thing came in and there were also we need to remember in the in the 70s and 80s there were massive issues with hooliganism in English football not that there weren't up here but it wasn't quite at the same level. And I, I would say as at a societal level as it was quite in England at the time. So it's never actually been part of our legislation up here. It's never been law that football stadiums have to have all-seater stadiums. So on that front as well, like we don't 
we don't have to wait for a green light necessarily for legislation to change or attitudes to change in England before we can do it ourselves up here which we've already seen, you know, with, with uh, Celtic Park being able to, to, to change part of their stadium. From a personal point of view, I've never really been part of uh, what I would call a slightly more European-style football fan. Like, I quite like having a seat and having a chat to my mates and a pie and a bother and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I absolutely cannot see any reason why we can't have safe standing. I think it's a huge distinction to go from safe standing, which is entirely different from just returning to the terraces that of were really dangerous that we had before. It's not the same thing. And anybody that thinks of the same thing has, hasn't done enough research on it because they are not the same thing. And I, as well, from a personal point of view, when I have gone to games that do have standing sections or ultra sections, I enjoy being in a stadium where that is part of the atmosphere. I've got no real desire to be in the midst of it, lighting flares or dancing up and down or banging a drum or whatever. I'll do that for you, Finn. <laughs> but I do enjoy being in matches where you do have that that atmosphere. So I, I, personally, I'm all for it as long as it's safe and we tackle it in a way that makes people, other people and supporters feel safe going to the games and that it doesn't detract from too much from the other elements of a match day experience. Well, here's the th- the thing, Finn. You you bring it up as being in a, a ground where you're maybe not a fan. Uh, you're just there as a punter or as a tourist, and that's the thing. When you look at Borussia Dortmund and that yellow wall, it's a bucket list for so many football fans that you want to go there. It's not just for the supporter of that team. It's for so many other people too to enjoy. It's a it's a drag. It's a mm. it's something that other people want to go and experience for themselves. And you also brought up the fact that you know these mandates that came in a long time ago, it has affected clubs that that, that do want to show ambition and get up the leagues. I think of Ross Ross County is one of the big ones that that, that sticks out in my mind. That the jail end that they had to not close, but they had to put in seats. And it's just. Sometimes you lose a little bit of your history as well. Yeah. History is important for football and for football clubs and for fans. And if they can create new history and, and find somewhere to try and, you know, fight other potentially massive clubs for, for an atmosphere that you'd, you'd want to experience for yourself, then by all means, I think this is this is an encouraging conversation. It's not obviously quite that everyone's being very careful and taking their time with it. But I'm glad that at least the conversation is being had. Maybe in 10 years, maybe 15 years, this might happen. I hope it's sooner than that. But, I mean, is there anything else holding these clubs back, Laura? Have you got anything else to jump in? No, I was actually going to just compare it to, like, we've had these conversations before in terms of bringing alcohol back to football. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously our discussions around safe pyro as well. There's just, there's a lot of things changing nowadays that we're still kind of living to rules that were brought in because of things that happened 30 odd years ago. Terrible things that happened, but we've never really kind of learnt from them and developed. We've just sort of held ourselves prisoner as a result of it. So I think this kind of falls into a similar category. There's There's been a lot of like research done into this. There's a lot of experiments done into this. And everything. There's different types of seats you can get as well. Now, I, I don't know in terms of cost-wise, which one's the cheapest ones, which ones are, are kind of more costly, but like, you've got the real seats like Celtic have, they're the most common ones that you can obviously sit, pull up, pull down when appropriate, which is the case for European games because they have to bring them down. You've got stool seats as well, which Hibs actually have in their disabled section, which are just set stools, like, almost like a kind of like you're sitting at a breakfast table style. 
um, and you're just higher up because of that, which um, is another option. You've got the fold-away ones, which quite a few teams in Germany have. You've got bolt-on seats as well, which to me just sounds like far too much work. <laughs> but the point of that is just there's there's various different types of seats you can get. And it really is a case of like, as you're saying, it's it's not a one size fits all. It really should just come down to what works for the team and works for that stadium. You look at teams like like Motherwell, like St Mirren, St Johnson, they've got their kind of um their ultra section, so to speak. Their 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 singing section is really growing. Hibs as well is another one. It's really become such a healthy section of their stands. Let's grow their sections. And if there's safe ways to do it, I mean the the research into it is it's really quite interesting because there's things like saying like it's not like the old days where you overpopulate the area. Like you would get in a terrace and you you have it's one space, one person, so to speak. Yeah. The capacity doesn't change. It's just you're given a safer area. They're citing things like goal celebrations become safer as well. There's there's not as much fear of people falling over each other. I mean, I think back to like, well, every Scotland game I go to, we stand. We stand in the B8 section, which is um, just next, it's the corner fly between the West and the North stand. Everyone in that section stands. It's just, it's the unwritten rule. Everyone knows when they go there, you don't sit down during a game. I wouldn't want it any other way. But if they're going to introduce a safer way of doing it, great. There's only so many times that Lee Griffiths is going to score two goals in the last four <laughs> minutes of a game and we're going to be falling on top of each other. Um, I, I dare say I don't mind my bruises when that does happen. But yeah, there are moments like that where you don't really want to be falling over seats because if anyone's ever done it before, the seat falls down with you. You don't just fall over a bit of plastic. You fall over a moving bit of plastic as well. Um and yeah, it's obviously it causes problems. You've got obviously like fans trying to jump over them to climb out of the stadium as well, like running over the, the, the rows that way. So it cracks down on that side of things. There's loads of different reasons that the research shows that a standing section is actually really good. And it's not just a case of, oh, we're just um, pandering to the ultras. It's not like that at all. It's actually just moving the times mm-hmm. and making it safe at the same time. I, I still think one of the biggest issues that any fan group or club will find in trying to in trying to bring about a safe standing area or an enlarged safe standing area within their stadium might be trying to satisfy factors outside of the football arena. I, I don't necessarily see the SPFL having an enormous issue with clubs wanting to have specific safe standing areas for their supporters on their grounds. I think you'll find it potentially issues coming from like say politicians and the policing authorities I think potentially that their cautiousness around those things are based on like you're saying Laura very very outdated and very kind of draconian thoughts around what a football fan is because I think the danger if you read a lot of the rhetoric around why we shouldn't have flares at football matches why we shouldn't have safe standing why you know this that and the other a lot of it is are derived from archetypes of what football fans, and let's be honest, specifically either old firm football fans from the early 1980s or the 1970s, which is like almost two generations ago, or English football hooligans, from, again, from the 70s and 80s. And these are the kind of archetypal stereotypes that drive mm-hmm. people's views on what a football fan is I think you're entirely right in saying that has changed over the number of generations since then and it's something that needs to be 
Um, I, I don't know how you go about trying to change people's attitudes at that level of society, at governmental level and on, you know, on policing levels or whatever, because we still see it every weekend, don't we? You know, it, it, we're always in our, our little WhatsApp group that like you've got a real thing with stewards, like jobs worth stewards that stop <laughs> you from filming things and things like that, which is totally legit. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just people trying to do their job. But I think it's because of these attitudes of like basically football fans should be treated like cattle and very often we are and we're not treated like adults we're not treated like at times supporters of any other type of sport in in the country i i think it's not unfair to say that rugby fans for example are treated entirely differently to football fans in scotland and i don't think that's fair but i'm just not too sure how we go about changing almost like the pr of what, what it is to be a football fan in Scotland, what it is specifically to be an Aberdeen fan or a Wraith Rovers fan or a Falkirk fan or a Celtic fan or whatever it is and how you relate to your community, to the local policing, to the government levels within your part of the country. I'm not too sure how we do that. And I, I, on that front, I think the SPFL should be trying to make a more concerted effort to change how other people outside of football fans see football fans in Scotland. You're right. You, you kind of bring up the point that it's more of a class issue than a fan issue because most football fans are just normal people who want to go and watch the football and then go home safely. We know the history. We've read it. We've seen it. We've prayed for everyone who's been harmed in it. And, and look, there, there may be bad things that happen in the future, but we have to kind of plan as best as we possibly can in this country to try and make things and atmospheres better for people because it gets people through the turnstiles and it creates memories for families. It creates nostalgic moments that will live for a lifetime or whatever. So really interesting, all of this, to hear from what you have to say because I think you look at European football and you look far more advanced than we do in this country and I, I, I count that as, as Britain as a whole. Football, bloody hell. The first major domestic trophy is up for grabs this Sunday with Celtic and Rangers making the short journey to Hamden. This will be the 16th meeting in the League Cup final between the two sides. Ange Postecoglou picked up this trophy in his maiden season as Hoops boss. Michael Beale will hope this will be his first silverware as manager of Rangers. To preview this final, the big game of the weekend, joining us is Tony Haggerty from the Celtic Way and Jordan Campbell from the Athletic. It's not often you have Celtic and Rangers fans together. So please keep it, uh, well, say what you want. I don't care. Have a laugh. So guys, I want to hear from both of you on how you're feeling for both teams heading into this one. Rangers classed as a home team, Jordan, so you can pick up first. It's got to be positive going into the final, considering the start deal was made. It might not have been scintillating most of the games. You know, if you were to analyse and dissect most of the performances, it's just about grinding out results. Probably, you know, the Tynecastle game is the one that really stands out. It's been an anomaly so far, but I think if people were expecting Bill to come in mid-season with two players joining in January and completely turn around and have them playing like they were two years into Gerrard's spell, then I think that's wishful thinking. You know, sit out at the end of the season, it was about trying to make a team that was struggling into a team that could win. And then I think the summer is when the rebuild well and truly starts. But 13 games, he's not been beat. The Celtic game, they're probably unlucky enough to get the results. So... There is confidence that he's shown the ability in games as well to make the changes that can get them over the line. I think the one area nerves for Rangers fans is always that Celtic are just ruthless in the final third. They've got so many options and they've proven more than this Rangers squad have that they know how to get over the line. 
what I feel before the semi-final, I think, was if this is going to be the end of this sort of chapter for 2018 to now, this is sort of nine players at a contract, this is going to be the end. Would two trophies really tell the true story of how good this Rangers team has been? Because at points, it's been a very, very good team. I don't think it probably would. So I think to complete the set for them would be a fitting way for them to, you know, do themselves justice. So I think that's got to be the focus for all the players on Sunday. And uh, I think it's too close to call, to be honest. I could see it going the distance, to be honest. Do you agree, Tony? Too close to call. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I think Celtic fans are giving us some real quiet optimism. You know, I think Celtic are in a good place. Jordan referred to Celtic's ruthlessness. You've seen that at various stages of the season. I think what Celtic could maybe share it as well as with the substitutes, the strength and depth that they have and the ability to make changes with players who can keep that tempo up. Jordan also said that Rangers are kind of rebuilt in the summer. I think Celtic have come through that process with, and possibly last summer. The rebuild's been pretty extensive and it's been very good. You, you talk about the same kind of sequence of results that since Michael Beal came in, but Celtic have extended their goals record, haven't they? Both teams have taken the same amount of points. I think if Celtic turn up, they can win quite comfortably. There's an air of confidence about Celtic. It's not arrogance or anything like that. I think Celtic do hold the firepower that Jordan says could frighten Rangers. Looking at the mentality side of this, the psychology aspect, Tony, firstly with you, Back-to-back League Cup triumphs, Celtic nine points clear in the league. How much of this does winning this send a message to Rangers? But on the flip side of this, to Jordan, Michael Beals had almost like a flawless start to his Rangers managerial career. So what would not winning, or on the flip side of that, winning a trophy do in terms of sending that message out there? Both sides have got a master delay down here, haven't they? Let's be honest. Beal wants to win his first trophy. That could be enough to carry him and his team over the line. That hunger and desire in quest to do that and Celtic will need to match that because Celtic were hungry to do it last season but I think it would be a real marker in terms of if Celtic win it and to do it against Rangers would not only please the manager and please the players but it would also please the supporters so I think there's markers on both sides and I think the, the winners will feel cock a hook won't they let's be honest but I think this is a real chance for Rangers to lay down some kind of marker on Celtic and Celtic will need to match that desire it's all right saying you're playing some pretty football and you're dismantling opponents, but you're up against a hungry opponent and you're up against potentially the only opponent in Scottish football that can go toe-to-toe with Celtic and can conceivably beat them. I was going to say, I think it's obviously always a huge game for both teams when it's a cup final, but I think it does feel more significant for Bale if he manages to win it, just because totally it's so early on in his tenure and I think with a league already nine points and essentially ten points, with a goal difference, you know, even if Rangers beat Celtic twice for now, it's unlikely that Celtic are going to lose another twice. So I think the two cups is where Rangers have put all their eggs into those baskets. So I think, you know, this season's still pretty open because if, if they win the first cup, then you never know. There could be an unforeseen wobble for Celtic. I doubt it, but there's still two cups there to be won. So I think for that and to avoid Celtic ticking off the first one, gathering the league and then they go into the Scottish Cup and there's a potential for another treble, then the title two years ago begins to look like an anomaly. And I think that's the, the scary thing for Rangers is that there's such fine lines because the rest of Scottish football doesn't seem to be able to challenge Rangers or Celtic, to be honest. You know, you look at Rangers, they actually could still end up at 100 points this year and not even take it to the final game. I don't think there's a huge, huge gap between the two teams. I think Celtic are the stronger side and they've got more strength and depth. I think when Rangers have got a fully fit squad, which is apparently never, 
But when 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 they have got a you know majority of their squad back, I don't think there is a big difference. I think the big thing will be getting Tillman and either one of Jack or Lundstrom back. I think they really need Tillman. He's the key. He's the man that can unlock the door. But again, it's a big game for after twenty year old to be going to be a match winner. But that's what Rangers have been doing lately. So. Again, I think that shows where Rangers are at the moment, which is they are relying on a few individuals every single week because they don't have the ability to do what Postacoglu does at 60 minutes and swap three strikers in for three, where the gap and level isn't really that noticeable, whereas with Rangers it is. Uh, I don't think Bale will go gung-ho. I think he'll be smart. And I don't think Rangers and their fans are going in with the same fear factor as they were when Gio was in charge. It's interesting because it, when you weigh up both managers, obviously... Ange winning his, this was the first one that he won. This could be Beal's one. But I wonder, it feels to me like it would hurt Beal more. The way that when he was coming to Rangers, he really wanted to get Rangers back to the way that they were and all the things that he was saying. I know there's still the Scottish Cup that he could play for as well, but if this is the first scalp for him, do you think he would be given more time if he ended the season trophyless? Well, I think you need to let your opponents know that you're capable of landing a punch from again. If Rangers <laughs> win this, it's a message to Celtic that we're coming for you in the summer. It's our turn to chase you again and we're on the road again. That's that's what somebody's got to be. If they don't win, I think Celtic have got that sort of invincibility back about them. So... I think it's all, it is a psychological thing where they need that momentum going into the summer. Mm-hmm. I don't think people, many people would look at Bale and judge him poorly because he lost one game, but you know it's all right winning 11 out of 12 in the league when everybody sort of feels the title race isn't really there. I think this is the ones where these small details, these in-game decisions will be key. So far he's shown, I don't know if it's a ruthlessness, but I think he's been very assured knowing what time, and maybe not making the obvious sub at times, knowing when it just... Sometimes it's not even been a, a, a systematic change. Sometimes it's just putting an extra striker on when maybe you'd expect them to shut up shop a bit. I think he knows how to unsettle the opposition as much as he does how to strengthen his own team. So, yeah, I think that's one of Bill's strengths. But again, I think he said during the week, you know, he's had to take a few deep breaths <laughs> since in the last few months because he's not been able to know what team he's got. I think Rangers will mostly have their full team back for the weekend. So I think... He has got the ability to go quite strong, but then is it Cantwell, is it Benz, is it Ruth? Those decisions that will make or break it, and I think it will be. I don't think it'll be a one-sided final either way. On the flip side of that then, Tony, how are Celtic lining up? Is it, it looks like Hugo's going to make it after all, but what's the kind of decisions that Postacoglu's got to take going into this one? Higgins is who's his strongest in line, because that whole squad is fit. I think there's about 18 to 20 players all wanting to play. There's real strength and depth, as I've alluded to. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's a given that when Kyogo's fit, that's his favourite striker, isn't it? I was always of the opinion, as soon as he said afterwards, when Kyogo got injured a week ago, he said he's a quick healer. I think Frank Miller would be back in the bench for that of his game against Aberdeen. I didn't think for a minute that he would put him on. But then you heard his aftermath comment saying he was getting angry that he wasn't getting on. So Kyogo will play. Now, you're, you're big, probably your big decision is, I mean, I, I think the Celtic back four certainly picks itself, doesn't it? Taylor on the left, Johnston on the right, Cameron Carter, Vickers and Starfield. Uh-huh. So you really, your big decision is probably your midfield, whether it's McGregor, Hitati and Moy or McGregor, Hitati and O'Reilly. You would probably go with Maida, Jota and Kyogo leading the line. Yeah, yeah. That's probably, the, in my head, what, what my head's saying, the big de- biggest dilemma is O'Reilly and Moy, isn't it, really? I always find Ange's a bit tough to read. You never know what kind of lineup he's going to. There's always like a little kind of like, oh, he's done that. That's a bit of an odd one. And it nearly plays the same side, does he? Twice in a row. Likes a curveball, and he's impossible to read. He does like curveballs, and he does. 
he has his way with the media, which is fine. That each to their own. You know, I think he's great value. Also, think feels great value as well. I think they've got two guys who are very articulate. In what they say, they'll back their club and their players to the hilt. Let's put it that way. And uh, a lot of intriguing sideshows on Sunday, isn't there? In terms of the lineups and stuff. Listen, it's as the world will be, will be type thing. You know, and I'm, I'm not sitting here saying that Celtic are going to win it at a canter. And I just think if they turn up, then they could win. So what, what's your what's your gut then, Anthony? Give me a scoreline. A scoreline, I, I think. Celtic could win 2 nothing. Jordan? I'm going for a classic. 4-0, aye. 1-0, Rangers. 3-2 after extra time, Rangers. Oh, wow. I'll go. I'll even get a four. The roof will get the winner. There we go. Jeez, oh. <laughs> Gone for specifics. Well, I'll go penalties, guys. How about that? Yeah. Yeah, go for the penalties. I'd love it. I'm sitting on the fence going for penalties, isn't it? Well, I'm going to be watching it with my missus in any game I ever watch with her. Always, I swear to God, always ends in penalties. So, don't blame me. Lauren, I won't bother going to you for a prediction. (laughs) Oh, cheers. Doesn't matter. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. (laughs) No one listens to me anyway. I'm interested in your prediction, Laura. What do you think? (laughs) I'm going to go with 2-0 Celtic. But you're going to come to the pub and watch it with me. And Emily's so, going to be there, so... So 2-0 penalties, go- then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's all, folks. If you do want to contact us, or the little is Rage on Laura, then you can via Twitter <laughs> at TSFS. Thanks to Tony Haggerty, Jordan Campbell for joining me. Laura, Finn, yous were class like Ken. Time for you to go now and listen to something else. Bye. <laughs>